Good. Now, I didn't realise this uh, until a couple of days ago, but today is the 22nd anniversary uh, since uh, Ayrton Senna died. And uh, I must admit, when he was alive, I didn't like him much because I was more into Nigel Mansell than Ayrton Senna. A lot of you are thinking, who on earth is Ayrton Senna? Well, he's a racing driver. But uh, uh, he was brilliant. Uh, but post his death, obviously, you, you review it and realise he was a genius behind the wheel. But he wasn't as good as this next person. I want to tell you about, because I first understood the depth of friendship in 1979, because in 1979 I realised I wasn't the next Trevor Francis, and I wasn't going to play for Blues and win the league for Blues, which is disappointing, because if I would have done, we would have won the league, and we'd be better than Leicester. But um, what, what I did, though, was I switched allegiance uh, to motor racing, and I fell in love with this... Not, you know, not physically, but I fell in love uh, with Gilles Villeneuve. I don't know, has any, have any of you heard of Gilles Villeneuve? Yeah, look at this. Yeah, the old people. Yeah. Basically, if you've never heard of Gilles Villeneuve, you are sort of old enough to do a Bible reading here in this church. So, so Gilles Villeneuve was quite simply the most amazing racing driver. I don't think there has been a better driver since him, including... Ayrton Senna. And in 1979, I just got into motor racing and he drove Ferraris and I'd heard of a Ferrari and I knew they were good. So that's him in 1979, number 12 in his uh, Ferrari 312T4, if you want to know what model it is. Um, and um, he had a teammate called Jody Schechter and you can see them there. Gilles is the one in red and Jody is the one in, with the blue sleeves. And um, they were racing to win the championship. Ferrari with a class car of the year. Both of them won uh, three Grand Prix each and they were doing really well. It was back in the days when you only had about 12 races for a world championship when it was proper. And um, they were both on about the same number of points and they were at Monza uh, at this fantastic Italian uh, race circuit. And I really badly wanted Gilles Villeneuve uh, to win. Um, and uh, so they started the race and Gilles Villeneuve has a reputation for being a wild man around the track. He'd hang the back out in the car. He would drive it when it was undrivable. He just had this reputation. But what did he do? He just followed Jody Schechter all around the track. He could have overtaken him on numerous occasions, and he didn't. He just followed him all the way home. He, they were racing for the championship, and he just followed him all the way around the track for 70-odd laps, or however long it is at Monza, and Jody Schechter uh, won the world championship. Ferrari won two. And I thought, well, why on earth has he done, why has he done that? Why wasn't he racing? And at the end of the race, it became clear because Jody Schechter was Gilles Villeneuve's best friend. And Gilles Villeneuve had no intention of trying to race Jody Schechter for the World Championship because at the time, Jody Schechter was Ferrari number one. And Gilles Villeneuve felt that was going to be dishonouring to his teammate and his best friend. And so all of Gilles' dreams and aspirations in that race were given up so that uh, Jody Schechter would win the championship. Gilles Villeneuve chose friendship over glory. And uh, I'm really glad that he's my sporting hero, absolutely sporting hero, because he did things in the right way. And if you just need to go on YouTube and type in Gilles Villeneuve and René Arnoux and watch the last lap of the uh, Dijon Grand Prix in France of that year, and you'll see why I love him so much. Gilles Villeneuve actually is a bit like Jonathan in our reading because Jonathan gave up everything for his best friend, David. So there was a point to the story. Now, but also I learnt about best friends and what friends mean and things like that. 
Now, I need to tell you, these talks on relationships, I always get a bit worried that you're all sitting there thinking we're complete experts and we've got that sorted, particularly. I know when Dave, Dave did the talk on sex, I know that was uh, definitely true. Um, um, he was the sexpert, I think you'd called it, that night. But one of the things I hope you realise is we're not experts. We're, we're trying to be honest in our dealings with these subjects. So when you talk about relationships, we try and be honest about it. But, you know, we're not an expert. So I'm not an expert on friendship. I can't tell you how to run your life and be a friend. I am a practitioner of friendship, though. I do try and be a good friend. I try. Uh, sometimes I'm not bad as a friend. I'm all right. I think, think I'm okay. Uh, I am interested in you, and I do want to listen, and I do want to be part of whatever is going on. I especially want to have fun, so uh, if you're a, a friend who does that, I definitely want to spend time with you. But the issue is, I know I've mucked up many times with friendships. I am not the paragon of virtue when it comes through. I am not the model you want to look at and copy to be a friend, because I know I fail many a time. I feel guilty often that I've not been able to follow up on friendships. Something started and then it hasn't finished and I feel ba bad about that because I know the main reason is I'm too busy or too lazy to have done anything about the spark of friendship which uh, started off. I find it hard, especially when I get conflicted in friendships, especially when somebody in, our fr in a friendship tries to get me to approve of their situation because of their negative behaviour. I, I find it really hard to know what to do, and sometimes I find myself avoiding it or even running away from the friendship because I don't want to have to meet up and deal with the situation which, uh, which that uh, gives me. Sometimes I find it much easier to, find, to just follow those surface friendships. So it looks as though you've got lots of friends, but really there's nothing uh, very deep uh, to it. So tonight what I'm trying to say to you is, I hope, like you, I'm just working it out. So I'm going to try and work out friendship in front with, with us all tonight. Um, but I am just working this subject out, friendship. Um, and um, I just hope that God speaks to me tonight as we work things out together. One thing I do know is we live in complex times for friendship. The tectonic plates are shifting when it comes to friendship. Social media age has uh, changed so much. Now, I, lots of priesty people like me dismiss social media. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I really like social media. I think it is, on the whole, a really uh, good thing. I think it does add to the sort of network of friendships and relationships which it can create. I really like Twitter. You can have a really good conversation on Twitter. I enjoy doing that. And I also like the way that Facebook helps us to keep in touch with long-lost friends, you know, from 20, 30 years ago. And you're finding out, uh, you see the pictures, and I enjoy sort of all of that interaction. I think it is really good, and I think it can really add uh, to life. Um, but also, we live in a world, though, now, where friends can be made in an instant and lost in an instant, and that could be to do with social media. Joy and fun are offered in a moment, and yet these brief encounters can cause timeless pain. Working it out in a digital age is hard. Instant banter can be so much fun, and then an inappropriate comment is made in jest, and it can cut you off forever. The digital screen means the need to impress has never been higher, but also a slight misjudgment means friends or trouble 
can, can go and trouble can follow you for a long time. It's hard to know really what makes uh, a good friend. Sometimes we go after quantity. I don't know, you know, in the early days of Facebook is how many friends have you got on Facebook? And I bet Libby's got at least double the amount of friends than I've got, probably quadruple. Um, so if you've uh, got a thousand friends, I think on Facebook you'll probably be cool. I haven't got a thousand friends. Um, uh, for Twitter, I think you need to double it. You need at least 2,000 followers to be in the room. I know most of you have got 2,000 followers. Um, for Instagram, I think you need three times, about 3,000, and then, then you're, then you're probably passing uh, the mustard. Um, you become judged, and the way you're judged is by the amount of friends and interactions you have. And that's very interesting. It's become such a, an issue uh, that businesses are growing up everywhere where you can pay if you want to double the amount of friends or treble the number of friends you have. So if you're interested in this, for a mere £10, just go to the Fan Me Now website and you can get a, an instant 10, well, no, sorry, 1,000 followers for £10. And if you pay £1,750, which I know many of you will be tempted to do, you can buy a million followers. So just for a, just, you know, just under two grand value if you ask me. Uh, if you need to beef up your views for, for YouTube, um, £150 uh, will give you 30,000 views, extra views. And if you um, pay um, uh, £3,100, press the viral button on it, you'll get a million views almost instantly on your YouTube uh, video. So no matter what social network on you're on, you can buy your way to popularity. So friendship can be about vanity and popularity. All this is a bit odd, really, as we talk about this, because experts tell us it's pretty difficult to have more than 150 acquaintances in your life. It's pretty difficult to go beyond that kind of level, because that's stretching things a bit too. So this chasing after friends seems fascinating. <coughs> Equally phenomenal to me, an equal phenomenon to me, is this idea of, I think it's BFF, best friends forever, and that can sometimes grip us. Intense, uh, exclusive relationship where we're not allowed to look beyond our sort of little group of BFFs. Uh, they can grip us, these friends. It might be really good fun and it might give an identity, but also it can stifle and uh, strangle us. I was reading an article by Lucy Mangan about how toxic relationships can be, how toxic relationships can be for girls, uh, but not so exclusively at school. And she spoke about the intensity of relationships at her school when she was growing up and how they became toxic and they became judging unless you became part of the right uh, crowd, unless you were wearing the right kind of clothes or you had your hair in just the way it had to be or you had the right views. You're on the edges of being excluded from your friends all the time. You're on the edges of being classified as a loser if you've got some of these sort of judgments uh, not quite right. She was saying that consultants are now being employed by schools to help people, the pupils, detoxify their friendships and to help reduce the intensity which we can be prone to. Lucy said it took her years to recover from her friendships at school. They left her feeling unattractive, and she is very attractive, and as though she had no value for anyone. And that's the thing about dysfunctional friendships. You carry the wounds well further on from when those friendships end. So intensity and shallowness, how do we bridge this gap? Popularity and exclusiveness, 
How do we get the balance right? Here's a definition of friendship. Just read the dictionary to get this. A friend is a person on the same side in a struggle, one who is not an enemy or foe, an ally. Albert Camus said this about friends. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Walk beside me, just be my friend. Albert Hubbard said, a friend is someone who knows all about you and still loves you. Muhammad Ali, another great hero. Friendship is the hardest thing in the world to explain. It's not something you learn at school, but if you haven't learned the meaning of friendship, you really haven't learned anything. And Helen Keller said, I would rather walk with a friend in the dark than alone in the light. Friend can take on so many different levels. You have those people you just connect with, you know, that heart connection, and you just know somebody's a friend a few years ago, just when I moved to Edinburgh, I clicked with somebody and discovered a new friend. And actually, I found it very life-affirming and quite exciting. And it was just, there was a spark between you. Somehow, uh, you know these people are on your side. And I don't know how it is, you just know. You have a friend who simply makes you laugh and they're good fun to be with. That's another great kind of friend. There's just some friends you've journeyed with forever and your lives and their lives just seem to collide. Your friends who you share a common interest with, like a hobby, a sport, a gym buddy, but not much else. You just do that hobby, you enjoy that, and then you go your separate ways. Some friends stick, and that's wanted, and, other, and sometimes it's unwanted. Some friends last forever, and some friends are just for a time. Some ebb and flow into your life. You have those friends who always seem to be there, even though you don't have much in common with them. You have friends you party with, you have friends you can cry with, friends you can trust with the big things, and others who that's just not their capacity. C.S. Lewis wrote a book in the 50s, in fact I think they were probably uh, um, radio scripts, and uh, it was called The Four Loves, and one of the loves he talks about is friendship. So he says, friendship is unnecessary like philosophy, like art. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. In other words, life is better with friends. It's more colourful and it gives it meaning. Now, a huge curse of our age, as we become the most connected and most involved in each other's lives, is actually this curse of loneliness. We have the possibilities to link up to virtually every person in the world, and yet we are lonelier than we have ever have been. A new study uh, published recently reveals that children are struggling with low self-esteem, loneliness, or deep levels of unhappiness, and this is from primary school upwards. And there's a free uh, counselling hotline uh, for children and teens up to the age of 19, and it said it was contacted 35,000 times in the last year by children struggling with how to be happy. In the organisation's 30-year history, general unhappiness is only a recent trend. Previously, it was self-harm and eating disorders which are the common causes for children to contact them. But today, unhappiness is strongly connected with a drive to keep up one's image on social media. One expert noted, it's clear that the pressures to keep up with friends and have the perfect life online is adding to the sadness that many young people feel 
on a daily basis, people are feeling more and more isolated and separate, separated and finding it harder to make friendships on any level. Struck uh, when I moved to Edinburgh about this issue of loneliness and friends, when I discovered this brilliant charity here called Bethany. I know I've banged on it many times, but it is outstanding. And from it, I learned that often people become isolated, vulnerable, and homeless simply because they have a lack of friends, a lack of people to rely on, and a lack of people who rely on them. People can be eased, though, out of homelessness if they just have eight people in their life who are not paid. So it's not the social worker or the doctor or anyone like that, but it's people who are just connected to them naturally in the way they go about their life. So just eight friends can help you function and take your place in a community. And that's part of the reason we do Soul Food, knowing that, that we want people to connect up together so friendships can be naturally created, so life improves for many people who, who are on the edges of society, that they can just come in and maybe find some friends, and out of that they can start to help themselves and work their way out of where they're at. But friendships can be hard. It's hard to work out um, how to do it and what to do. Complications have happened, distractions, difficulty, vanity, loneliness, isolation, low self-esteem, popularity, shallowness, intensity, toxicity, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, school, colleagues, partners, parents, children, boyfriends, girlfriends, personal history, rejection, illness, denial, pressure, conformity, self-esteem, secrets, me, all collide together to work out, to make it really hard to work out what it means to be a friend. I love Jerry uh, Seinfeld, and he reflected that as he's got older, he's found it much harder uh, to make friends. He says, making friends takes up so much energy. And he says this, though. Remember when you were a little kid, what were the qualifications for becoming friends? If somebody's in front of my house now, he says, that person is my friend. That's it. Come in. Jump up and down on the bed. And uh, all you have to do is have one thing in common, do you like cherry cola? Yes, I love cherry cola. We'll be best friends. And despite that fact, it might just be possible, though, to get through life with no friends. I'm very sure, you know, you're all here tonight. You all want to be connected. So I'm sure that virtually all of us here tonight want to have friends, want to be connected. And it, but it is possible to get through life with no friends. But it's also not the way Christians believe we've been designed. Relationships, friendships and connections are at the heart of what it means to be human. I know we visited Genesis 2 before, but as we start to understand this passage, the, uh, the, this thing about relationships and friendships, the early chapters of Genesis always play an important part as we work out what it means this relationship things. And if you're just going to Genesis 2, when God realised that it was not good for the man he'd made to be alone, and he realised that the man needed more than just the beautiful creation he'd created, and more than just the job to do of looking after that creation, and even more than just the face-to-face -face relationship with God, you realise that friendships become important. There's something intrinsic with human beings which we need to, want to, have to relate with other human beings. And in the garden, God, with the man, discovered this. So he created the woman. 
Now, passages like this get hijacked, completely hijacked about sort of the marriage debate and the human sexuality debate. And I don't want to talk about that tonight because I think a key thing we miss in, as we rush uh, to sort of these modern issues of human sexuality as we try and interpret, uh, interpret them, we miss this idea of friendship and community and the need to relate beyond just that exclusive way, rather than just the open way. The need to have people to interact with so we can be human as we're meant to be. Without this, in most circumstances, we become lonely if we don't have anyone. We lose our identity. We don't have that interaction to work life out. We miss out on fun. We miss out on creativity. We miss out on the other point of view. We miss out on new ideas to help develop us. We miss out on protection and working together and conversation. God created Eve for friendship with Adam. Genesis is not about that exclusive relationship. It's about something much, much deeper. It's about relationship, equality, discussion, doing life together, friendship. Sin of the church is neglecting, putting at the heart of the Christian message this key idea called friendship. Friendship is God's plan for humans. Doing life together, being open to others, including others, having friends is vital. So friendship is an incredible idea of creation. We are not on our own. We have others. We have each other. And that's vital. It's what we need. It's a basic want. There's nothing wrong in wanting to be friends or having friends or being a friend. It's actually really godly. It's good. So the myriad of relationships from close to distant, from easy to difficult, from life-giving to hard work, these all help us to become the people we're meant to be. They shape us and form us. Godly life includes other people who we call friends. But knowing all this doesn't make making friends or having friends any easier. It doesn't help us to keep friends, knowing that friends are important. It's still complex to work out how to do this friendship thing. It's hard to make friends. So in the remainder of the talk, I just want to talk about just one simple idea, which I think is the idea of friendship. It's probably, I think, the idea of life. But it's a definition Sorry, it's definitely something, I think, which will help us make our friendships much better. It's right at the heart of the Bible reading, which uh, Roger read to us about those uh, two characters called David and Jonathan. Just want to very quickly sum up the passage uh, before I open up this idea. Because David and Jonathan are friends. They are best friends, deep friends. Jonathan is King's, sorry, Saul's son. And David was once in Saul's good books. Um, and highly favoured and much in demand. He was even a friend. But now, in the moments of this reading, David is no longer Saul's friend. Saul now hated David with a passion, and David and Saul's relationship had become highly charged and difficult. And Saul saw David as a great threat to his kingdom and to his role as king. So politically, Saul thought David was trying to overthrow him, and so and stop him being king. And David felt that the situation had grown so bad that Saul was now trying to kill him. And in fact, he did try to kill him, as Roger uh, said at the start of that reading. And so David's stuck, and he doesn't know which way to turn here. It's a really hard situation he's in. He's scared, life is difficult, and despite Jonathan being Saul's son, 
David trusts Jonathan, and he's the only person who he can uh, talk to and talk through this difficult and complex issue. And so he turns to Jonathan, and they talk, and they listen to one another, and they work it out. This is a highly developed friendship in action. Friendship which is life-giving, it's loving. Jonathan loves David so much, he's prepared to give everything to him. It's a relationship where each person needs the other. Life is very tough, especially for David. But because of the situation, even though Jonathan doesn't want to believe it, life is going to be even tougher. There's much angst going on in the conversation. I bet there's snot and tears too. This is life at its most difficult. But both friends are fully engaged and are trying their best for each other. And there's a key word, which I think is this secret to friendship, and that word is vulnerability. Vulnerability. Both of them are completely vulnerable here. They are talking from the hearts. They're being honest. They're challenging each other. I love that scene in uh, Harry Potter uh, where Neville, I think it's in the first Harry Potter film, I don't read the books, I watch the films, much quicker, just so you know. And it takes about an hour and 50 minutes. It's much better. Take me all year to read a book. Um, so, but when Neville, he, he's the little podgy one, isn't he? Neville, he, although he's very good looking now, have you seen him? He's strapping, lovely lad. <laughs> yeah. But I, I've noticed that on social media, in fact. Um, but Neville challenges Hermione, Ron, and Harry before they go off to have their adventure because they're breaking the rules. And he says, no, you shouldn't, shouldn't do that. And he wins the prize at the end of term for being a really good friend because he said the difficult stuff to them. Uh, I think I've got that right. Watch Harry Potter number one and you'll get it. It's bound to be on tomorrow on, on STV because they'll be showing... Yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. They'll show Harry Potter. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm giving you some life-giving advice here. It's great. But... but, uh, but it, Neville challenged them, and they are challenging each other here, Jonathan and David. They're questioning. They're in the pain uh, together. They're engaged in what the other person is feeling and saying. Something beautifully healthy is on display for us to read and imagine and work out. Now, just to be clear here, this isn't the kind of vulnerability, you know, when you overshare on Facebook, so, you know, feeling a bit down, and then you go and get a million likes saying, I'm thinking of you, what can I do to help you? It's not that kind of a sort of oversharing vulnerability just so you can have some nice, like a cat sitting on your knee, be stroked in a, in a nice way. It's not the vulnerability when you're feeling so bad that you, you make that sort of little statement so you can be noticed. This is about sharing. Vulnerability is about sharing what's going in your heart and making yourself accountable so you can work things out. David is saying, hey, Jonathan, life is really complicated and hard for me. Can you help me work it out? And Jonathan is saying, okay, tell me more, David, because even though I'm finding this conversation uh, hard, I am choosing to help you. Both are making themselves vulnerable. David is being honest in such a way that Jonathan could leave him. And if he uh, was evil, just hand him over to his father and then to David's inevitable death. Jonathan was being vulnerable uh, by mixing with Israel's most wanted man. But if you asked either of them, they wouldn't have had it any other way. They were friends. 
They were engaged in each other's lives. They wanted to help them, even though it was very costly, even though it's a very dark situation and very chaotic and different, uh, difficult to work out. There's no wanting to impress. There's no boasting messages saying, just hang out with David, how cool is that? Or I'm, I'm hanging out with the king's son. None of that on Facebook. Here's a nice little picture, selfie, and all this type of stuff. No saying how great they were, how great their life is on Twitter. There was no, uh, I'm not good, good enough for this or you. There was no neediness on display here. It was only possible because pe- these two people had given themselves completely to the friendship and it was almost as if the rest of the world was invisible to them as they worked it out. I've been very fortunate in the last year to be on, go on some fantastic training courses. One of the best things about coming to this church is we've got some amazing members in our congregation and you get invited on these courses. And uh, both have had uh, the idea that if you want to be the best version of you, you want to be, you have to learn to be Uh, vulnerable and you discover vulnerability and you are vulnerable. Now this feels really uh, counter-cultural where actually you know on Facebook I just want to share my successes, I want to put beautiful shiny pictures of myself up on Instagram. But be honest with yourself, how many of us like our friends boasting how brilliant their lives is? Do we like it when we see on Facebook? I'm on my eighth foreign holiday this year with a nice uh, sort of picture of some blue horizon. When you live in Scotland, I find that awfully hard. But to, you, you know all this. A good friend won't just share the great stuff in their life. You know, they'll share their weaknesses as well. We don't just want the good stuff. We want the bad stuff as well. We want real. So it moves, I think, from being about a friendship which is about competitiveness and I'm doing a bit shinier and better than you to that mutual relationship where genuine help is sought and given, and that is what vulnerability is about. It's about when we stop boasting and start getting real. So one course told me all about, as human beings, we put on masks to make ourselves look better. I don't know if, if you do that. Some of you are nodding. I'm very brave of you to, to nod. So we may put on masks and we make ourselves look better. Maybe we feel better about ourselves. I've got my really good cool mask on uh, today, and we, protect, we try and protect ourselves. I've got my intellectual mask on today, so I'll be able to deal with this. In fact, sometimes we can wear multiple masks. We wear different masks from person to person. Oh, this is a clever person. I'm going to be clever with them. This is a funny person. I'm going to be funny with them. We change our masks and we do all of that. I know many of us struggle with this and sometimes we feel so low about ourselves. We feel our esteem is shot so we dare not declare our real selves. Sometimes we're so ashamed we know our past history and we think if if I show that, nobody's going to laugh like me. Sometimes we're just too vain and wearing a mask just sort of uh, enables us to look better and, and we feel get more friends. But if we do that, if that's the way we behave, we'll never be real. Choosing vulnerability means actually I'm going to choose to take my mask off here. I'm going to show how I'm really feeling or how I'm really looking. And that's a hard thing to do. But if both friends do it, that's when magic happens and we start to really understand what life's about. For David and Jonathan, the masks were off, and there was no uh, uh, impress me, and there was no I'm not good enough. And because of this, in their honesty, they were able to work things out in a real and life-changing way. They knew, as they were dealing with this issue, life was never going to be the same again, and maybe their friendship would change as they were so vulnerable. 
but they were still, because of their commitment and vulnerability to their friendship, able to deal with the situation. Beware of your masks in your friendship. We all wear them from time to time. I wear them often. But they're not the most helpful things. Vulnerability wins. If you've got something which you're trying to cover up all the time, maybe that's something in you which needs to be dealt with. And go and chat to somebody and say, how can I deal with this? A safe person. Then, of course, I went on, spoke about something called uh, rackets. Now, you, you need to know that in 1920s America, alcohol was completely illegal. You couldn't uh, buy it, you couldn't drink it, and it was uh, prohibition uh, came uh, into being. And uh, what that meant is that uh, the government tried to stop anyone in America drinking alcohol. And so what happened was lots of coffee houses uh, grew up uh, around the place and people went for so-called uh, coffee and they sit around. It was like a, sort of a Starbucks and people would have coffee. And people did use them for coffee houses, but that was just the front of the house. Because if you're running a racket, it meant there was something behind the house, probably a bit of gambling, certainly a lot of booze and alcohol and drinking and things like uh, that going on. And the back room was where the action was. The real action wasn't the front room, the coffee house. The real action was uh, behind the place. And often in friendships, though, we will wear our front rooms. We've all got our front rooms. But the issue is, our front room isn't where the realness is. Our realness is situated in the back room. It's where we hide our shame away and we hide all the bits we don't want to see about people, all those bits of fun we don't want others to know, the bits we think are probably not quite right, especially if we're Christians, and Christians run some cracking rackets, let me uh, tell you. And often in friendships, we'll just share the front room, but the thing is, as the relationship deepens, if we start to share the back room and start to share our rackets, that's where friendship will develop and grow and become the most amazing thing. If we share where the actions are, share our secrets, the hurts, the sins, the shame, um, we can st- and as we start to reveal it in our friendships, we somehow start to deal with ourselves and grow as people. Life becomes more powerful. It enables us to realise, actually, perhaps the darkest bits of me aren't as bad as I thought, thought they were. Perhaps the darkest bits of me can be healed. Perhaps I can start to accept, uh, accept those really painful memories from years ago because my friend isn't rejecting me as I share them. Perhaps I can do life in a bit of a different way for us. There is dark and there is light in all of us. Many Christians deny this. No darkness in me. Let me tell you, there is darkness and light in all of us. Jesus had to come for the dark parts of us. And sometimes the dark parts aren't as dark as we think they are. There is light and shade. It's what makes us human. And the deepest friendships will have this and they will work this all out. And together, as you work it out, uh, you can grow as people. Knowing this kind of stuff has transformed me because I I would just want to present my best side and pretend life is okay. But I've got one or two new friends, not not new friends, one or two friends. I've started to show a little bit of the shade in my life and I've found healing and insight I never thought was possible. i found that people have accepted me even though I know there's some grim stuff I've shared with them and I've just had love given back to me. Allowing people into my back room, being vulnerable, has enabled me to sort of uh, 
in a very powerful way to understand more about what love and acceptance is. Jonathan was invited into David's racket, into his back room, into the shade. And he would have realised that David was wanting to be king in these conversations. In other words, that David was after Jonathan's job because Jonathan was the son of the king, so he was next in line for the throne. But this vulnerable, mask-free, going into the shade uh, conversation between friends was to transform things because from now on, everything was out in the open. And very powerfully, um, it, it allowed, enabled Jonathan to give his blessing to David, knowing that his life was going to be changed forever. Vulnerability is king when it comes to relationships. When we discover a friendship where we can be truly open and mutually share the dark as well as the light, a relationship where we let our masks drop and we stop pretending, we enter into something very powerful. It's deep and it's beautiful. Lots of people think vulnerability is a weakness and uh, businesses will manage against vulnerability because vulnerability equals risk and that's the whole point. Good friendships have great risks running through them and it's a secret to life and friendships, being open and honest and real, not trying to win and dominate as many of us would like to, not trying to manipulate and control the situation because we're feeling needy in ourselves and not being needy and demanding attention, but instead being vulnerable as an alternative changes things. It allows ourselves to be open and real and will allow friendships to blossom and releases so much. Some friendships, some of our friends might not be able to cope with some of this stuff. And I'd just say, are they real friends indeed? Because you start to discover who the life-giving people is. So be careful, not every friendship is able to cope with this level of, of sharing. It's probably not the right thing to do with your football bodies, maybe just yet. And if you just want to go out and dance every Friday evening with your dancing buddies, it might not be the right place also. But there will be some friends, one or two people, where you can be vulnerable. And when we discover them, our life will get better. For some of us, I know this is a real challenge. But in this is the idea of transformation, where we in safe spaces and places can work out how we can be the people that God has designed us to be. The key characteristic, actually, of Jesus is his vulnerability. He was a vulnerable friend. He had 12 friends, as we all know. And uh, we read that he had three especially close friends, Peter, James, and John. One very close friend who was, who was John. Just read John's Gospel. And those conversations are reflecting that depth of relationship which John and Jesus had together. It's a very special book. Jesus needed his friendships to survive. His friendships were as important to him as the friendship with Jesus was to the other. And he chose to be vulnerable as he shared his father's heart with his friends. We read in John 15 how Jesus had grown so close to disciples. He says, I now call you friends. He was so open and vulnerable with them, uh, so much that in actual fact they couldn't uh, take it. And uh, all of them, in some way or another, on Monday, Thursday or Good Friday, for a time gave up on Jesus. It was too open, too vulnerable. And the key thing is, though, for Jesus, he hadn't given up on them. Because of his resurrection, Jesus went on to give his first friends a complete second chance. And that's what he does with his friends. That's, um, his, and we, his followers, are his friends today. And we still have this second chance. He offers us a chance of friendship with him this evening. 
he is vulnerably here in the room today and offering his hand of friendship to us this evening. He reaches out to us and he whispers for the first time maybe to us, or maybe to the millionth time, can I be your friend? He is the vulnerable friend who empowers us and also who helps us in our friendship. He gives us our friendships to help us to be the people he's called us to be, to help us understand more of his ways, understand more about us and to encourage us to help our friends to find his kingdom and their own friendship with Jesus. So let's just pause and reflect on our own friendships now before we move into a time of Holy Communion. I don't know how your friendships are at the moment. I don't know if you've got friends. I don't know if you're so overwhelmed with friends you you don't know what to do with your time because they're so demanding. I don't know if there's issues in your friends. I don't know if you've gone all self-sufficient in your friendships, that you're just trying to, 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 to do it. You're too in control. You're trying to control your friends. Maybe you're Maybe you're somebody who's just a bit shallow. You don't really want to get close to people because you've been hurt before. Because uh, somebody you've made yourself vulnerable and it didn't work. Maybe, maybe you're one of those <coughs> needy people. I know I am often needy and wanting some affirmation, and you're not quite going about it the wrong way. Maybe you're one of those manipulative people who try and bend people to do your things and do your will, and doesn't feel after hearing this sermon the right place to be. You want to work out how to be a vulnerable friend. Is there a friend, as we're winking, you just need to say sorry to tonight that you've really mucked up? I know I need to send a couple of emails, really, after preaching this sermon. I, I have mucked up a couple of friendships. I just need to touch base again. Maybe need to say sorry about it. Maybe we need to deepen a friendship and we're not prepared to take that risk at the moment, but we want to. Maybe we just feel completely lonely. We've just got nobody in our lives we'd like to have in our lives maybe we've been let down maybe we need healing because it's been really hard this area maybe there's something about the masks we're wearing we need to work out how we can take those masks off maybe we're running a racket at the moment though we're not revealing the real us but it's going on behind us in the dark room it's a lifetime's work this we're not going to do it in an instant but friendships are so important and especially when we find the power of vulnerability we enter into a new realm and we start to exist in the place where God wants us to be so let's just be quiet and just say to God what we want from this and from our friendships